Hi, everybody, again. It's already been a great night, and I believe it's going to get better because we're going to spend a little time in the Word of God. We're going to continue tonight with our um, series that we've been on called Poured Out. And just before we do that, let's take a moment and pray, can we? Lord Jesus, we love you, we serve you, seek you, we want to be with you. We ask tonight that, uh, Spirit of God, that you would speak through me the words that you want to say. Not the words of a man, but the words that you want to uh, dig into the hearts of people who are here. Pray that you would open their ears to hear the things that you want to say. Not my words, but God, the, the words that I, I might speak or I might not speak. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to them and encourage them tonight. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing in the city of Austin. We thank you for what's happening in the churches. We thank you that we get to be part of it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, so we've been in this series called Poured Out. And the idea has been that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, that we are living these lives of worship where we pour ourselves out so that the Spirit of God can pour Himself in. And tonight, I want to continue that journey a little bit by just talking about a very simple idea. And that idea is this, uh, that there is, I think, a baseline of obedience that God has given to every one of us. There's a baseline for all of us to live by. He's required some things of us, and that's great. And we want to say yes to all those things. But I think, as we talk about this idea, and the way that we worship, and the way that we offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, I think there is a life that is beyond that baseline. Beyond just the bare minimum. Beyond just scraping by, doing the very bare minimum that you can. You know where you see this a lot? Where I see it right now? is with my children. My children, now granted, all right, I have a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old, okay? So I'm not expecting the world so far. I have little expectations that are appropriate for their little ages. But when we have cleanup time around our house, we say, okay, everybody, time to go, time to clean up, time to get your toys, rally them up, pick them up, take them to your rooms, and so my son, Ewan, he's five, and he's pretty good at it. Uh, surprisingly, he's really, really wonderful. He marches in, he goes in, he gets in my room, or he gets in the living room, and he starts picking it all up. He's putting them together, he's holding them in his arms, and he just overdoes it every time. He's just got stuff everywhere, he's holding these, dropping things, and he's saying, hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy, hey, I don't think I could carry any more toys than this. And I'm saying, you're doing good, buddy. That's right. And so he goes and he trods off to his room and gets in his room and, you know, appropriately throws it all on the ground in his room. One step at a time, everybody. And so then he runs back out and he comes and he gets more arm loads and he gathers them up. Same thing, spilling out. Daddy, daddy, I got more. I just don't think I could carry anymore. Okay, buddy, good job. And he runs them back in. And I wish he would just put them away, but we're not quite there yet. He throws them in there and so we're working. Now, I have a daughter who's six and she's not quite there. We got to work with her a little bit more. Because what she'll do is she'll kind of walk by. 
while Ewan's running around. She's kind of meandering around. And she'll grab kitty or doggy or piggy. We have very imaginative names in my house. And she'll pick up a stuffed animal. And she'll meander over and pick up her blankie. And she'll kind of walk into a room, nonchalant. She'll throw it on the ground. And then I don't see her for 15 minutes or so. I hear noises rustling around back there, but I don't see her anywhere. And she might reemerge at some point and say, Hey, Aurora, come on, babe. Come on and get back to it. You know where else you see it is you see it kind of in, uh, you see it if you, <laughs> you see it as you go into junior high or you get into high school or especially in college. I don't know about you when I was in college. Um, there were moments, I confess, that I just tried to get away with what I could get by with. Did you ever do that in college? Come on, everybody. No, I was an A student. I studied hard. I did everything. Well, I did not always. So I, I remember, you know, saying to my friends, hey, man, hey, listen, it's been a week. So do you know what's on the test? Did you get the study guide? Because I kind of didn't make it to class today. So did you get the study guide? And what's on the test? Do you know what's on the exam? Give me what's on the exam. Let's talk that through. I'll memorize that. I'll go take the exam. We'll be done. You're looking at me like I'm a horrible person. You, you never did this? Thank you. Thank you finally for your honesty. I'm here pouring my heart out in honesty. You're like, oh, not me. I would never do anything like that. Lies. Now, I graduated with honors eventually, so I mended my ways. I found Jesus. I gave my life to him. I became a responsible and mature Christian adult. Why are you giggling? <laughs> so, but I, but I confess to you that I did have those moments where I just wanted to barely scrape by. And I don't think that's the kind of life that Jesus has called us to. As you read through scripture, you find, of course, all kinds of talk all throughout about obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is of the utmost. Obedience is so very important. You find uh, early on, of course, the beginning where, where uh, the people of God receive the law. And so they are to obey the law. As you continue on through the Old Testament, you hear the prophets come and they speak and they say uh, the mouthpieces of God. And they say, hey, uh, this is what God says to you and this is what you need to do. And if you don't, there will be dire consequences. And then they respond accordingly. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. And the consequences go accordingly. And then Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along and, and he starts to turn things a little bit. And this is familiar probably to most of us. But let's read it anyway in Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
saying, I didn't come to get rid of any of the things that you know. I didn't get, come to get rid of this or, uh, or take away this obedience to the need for it. I came to actually fulfill those things and then to become even more. So as you continue on, let's go, to, uh, verse, let's go to verse 20. It says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Message Bible says it very interesting. It says that same, that final uh, phrase there. It says, Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Of course, the Pharisees, they're the ones who, uh, you know, were the, the experts, the ones who knew all about the law and what we were supposed to do, what they were supposed to do. And so Jesus is coming and he's presenting kind of a new way of living. Now, I'm going to stay uh, camped out here, I think, in the Message Bible. We're going to stay in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 21. Verse 21 says Jesus starts, he starts into these six statements that he starts making to kind of give this idea. He says, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Another familiar idea, if you jump down just a little bit to verse 27, he says, you know the next commandment pretty well too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. And the NIV, when you read these statements, it says things like, says things like, uh, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. You've heard this said in the past, but I tell you. And he starts taking the conversation a little deeper. He starts presenting ideas like, look, if someone smacks you across the cheek, then turn to them the other one as well. If someone says, hey, give me your shirt, then you take off your cloak and give that to them. If someone says to you, hey, take my stuff and go this mile, then go with them another mile. There's a baseline for everybody, but there's more. I think what he's articulating here is the, the beginning of this idea. And if we were to identify it, I think we would say it's living by the Spirit. It's living in step with the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit of God. It's a place where you no longer just act, where you no longer just um, respond uh, externally to things that have been told you, but instead you begin to internalize. He's starting to tell us that what goes on inside of you matters. What's inside matters. Your heart matters. Your spirit matters. The work of the Spirit of God in you, it's important. It matters. Instead of just externally acting like something and being obedient externally, you can actually begin to become something, being led by the Spirit of God. I hope one day that I see that with my kids. 
I hope one day that Ewan will say, eventually, he will come into the room and he'll say, hmm, well, it's kind of dirty in here. <laughs> okay, all right, that's going to happen. Uh, he'll walk in one day and he'll say, well, it's dirty. Maybe he'll be 40 or 35 or something like that, but I believe it's going to happen. He'll say, well, it's dirty in here. We need to clean this place up. And so rather than me as his father saying, all right, hey, boy, clean this stuff up and take it to your room, put it away. He'll say, hey, Daddy, you know what I did? I came in, I saw all my toys, and I thought, oh, we shouldn't do that. So I picked up all my toys, and I took them away, and I put them away. Why did he do it? Just because he loves me. Because he started to become something as I trained him. I think that's kind of a, a representation of the life that Jesus has called us to. Not to simply live by a baseline of obedience, but to go beyond it. There is a baseline, and it's good, but there's life beyond. My question for all of us tonight is, are you living beyond that baseline? Because the concern that I have is that we tend to think that the baseline obedience is like the ultimate achievement. We've kind of missed it a little bit. I think we tend to think, and maybe you don't, but I know that I've been guilty of it before, we tend to think sometimes that, uh, well, let's see, if I'm not lying, I'm doing pretty good. If I didn't cheat, I'm doing all right. If uh, I'm not coveting my neighbor's stuff, yeah, I'm doing great. If I didn't kill anybody, what's well, been a good week? If, uh, if I'm keeping the Ten Commandments, man, I, I'm a, I am a super Christian. And if I decide, Matthew 28, to try to go and actually make a disciple out of somebody else like the Great Commission like Jesus told us to, if I decide to go do that, I'm not sure how this works. But I'm pretty sure that, that qualifies me for some kind of saint status. I think that's how that works. That's not true. The truth is, all of those things are at the bottom. All those things are the baseline for everyone who follows Jesus. And then from there, there's more. So tonight, I want to I tell a story from the scriptures. And uh, I want to talk about this idea of a group of guys who understood the baseline of obedience and one guy who said, I think Jesus is asking for us to do more. All right, so let's do it quickly. It's Matthew chapter 14. Turn there. Matthew 14, starting in verse 14. I'm back in the NIV now. Here we go. What's going on here is that Jesus has just, he's found out the news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's discouraged by that. He's, he's upset and he wants to go and find a solitary place to go and pray. And so he tries to get away, but crowds follow him and press in as they always do. So as he's on his way, we join in verse 14 of chapter 14 of Matthew. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples, they came to him and said, Look, this is a remote place. It's already getting late, so send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I think that this is really what goes on with us, too. 
I think we look around, we look around our families, we look around our workplaces, we look around to the different people in our lives, and we, we look and we evaluate and we say, oh man, I hope somebody does something about that guy, because that guy is a train wreck. He needs some spiritual food. He needs help. That lady, whoo, boy, she needs some work. They need to know Jesus because they can't figure it out. So we pray and we say, oh, man, I hope God, I hope somebody does something. God, I hope you do something. And he looks at you and says, hey, you give them something to eat. And we go, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't think I, I, I'm not really qualified to do that. Again, that's sainthood status. So I'm not really there yet. Nope, this is baseline. So he says, you give them something to eat. And they respond kind of the way we do. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and take in the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. And he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. The disciples responded in much the same way that we do. Oh, God, you don't understand. Look, I don't have much to give. I mean, I, I, I can't sing like Marty, and I, I can't preach like Ross, and I can't, I can't, do, I can't write like that person. I can't, I can't seem to even manage my finances or my family. I, I don't have much to give, God, and you want me to go and help that individual? You want me to actually say something to them about you and what you've done in my life? That's crazy talk. I can't do that. This is all I've got. And he looks at you and he says, I know what you got. I'm the one who gave it to you. Now, bring it here to me. And so we bring him the little meager things that we have. We hand them up to him. And he does what Jesus can do. He looks to heaven and he gives thanks and he breaks it. He works with it a little bit. He might change it. He transforms it a little bit. He might tear some things off. He might work a little bit in you. And then he hands it back. In the story, he hands it to the disciples. And the disciples, they start walking around. They start giving it to all the people. What's really cool about that idea is that in God's kingdom, when he starts to work with something in our lives, and he, he starts to break something, it's not a subtraction. There are times we have to just break stuff away and remove it and get rid of it. Sin issues and inklings and habits and patterns. Yeah, all that's true, but... But oftentimes when he breaks something in you because he wants to use you, it's not subtraction, it's a multiplication. It, it may hurt a little bit initially, but he's multiplying. And soon you find yourself doing things that you never thought you would do because of him. So the disciples, they go and they hand it out to everybody. And everybody eats. All these people, they eat. 5,000 men and probably more like 10,000 considering women and children. I mean, don't go Sunday school on me, okay? Just, you got to sit in the passage. You got to think about it. Join the story. Think about being there on that hillside, on that day. Think about, as the sun is setting, think about looking around and seeing this massive crowd of 10,000 people. And Jesus takes these five loaves of bread, two fish, breaks them. He gives thanks. He starts handing them out. And you go and you start, you take from him and you go and pass it out and say, okay, all right, well. I gave out mine. I don't know what you're going to Oh, where'd you get that? Okay, well, uh, I'm going to do that again. Yep, I guess that's it. Well, great job. We fed five people. I don't know. 
Okay, yeah, all right, I'll do that. And, and you just keep going, simply doing what God had told you to do. There's a few things I just want you to see from this passage. Let's do them quick. Number one, Jesus is the provider. He's the one who provides. He is the provision for everything that you need in your life. Number two, Jesus tells them in this story what to do. Jesus is the one who says, look, take those loaves and, and fish and bring them here to me. Then the disciples, they provide the meager materials, five loaves and two fish, and then Jesus performs the miracle. But he does it through their hands. That's the fifth thing. Jesus does the miracle through the hands of the disciples. And the disciples give them out to the people. And all these people, 10,000, eat that day. And then there are 12 baskets left over. Now, I can't say for sure. You can read lots about why that was. and There's lots of different ideas out there. But me, I just like to think that there are 12 disciples hanging out there. He just said, when it all adds up, I'm going to have 12 baskets left over for all the guys. So each one of them stands there with a basket and goes, <laughs> blown away by what just happened. Jesus' way of saying, see what I can do? This is what I can do. You can do it too. But that day, they just did what they were told. So then we continue on the passage in Matthew 14, verse 22. And in verse 22, now it starts to get a little more exciting. Now it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, uh, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. <laughs> I love it when the Bible does that to us. It just very nonchalant kind of says, oh yeah, hey, by the way, uh, after all that, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Again, don't go Sunday school on me. See it. See it. Think about this. These guys have been all night rowing. They're, they're trying to work through this little storm that came up, trying to get through the waves, and they're not having much luck. And then Jesus, he just starts coming out to them, just walking on water, he went out to the walking in the lake, and they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I love how this happens because it's so, it's so common, and Ross brings this up all the time, where, where Jesus appears or an angel appears and just kind of out of nowhere, poof, oh, don't be afraid. I don't ever get that. And this is one of those cases, right? This is where the, the guys have been rowing all night long, and they can't seem to get anywhere. And I, I don't know if the sun had come up yet. I'm not sure how they saw him. I mean, they're screaming, it's a ghost. What was he, glowing? What was happening here? Is he just coming across the water? Oh. Now, just for clarification, I don't actually think he was glowing. <laughs> all right? But... But for somehow, they see him, and they're scared. It's a ghost. And he says, hey, look, don't be afraid. It's just me. You know, it's interesting. It's just a quick little aside here. Jesus is not afraid of the storms that you go through. You know, commonly we read about storms in Scripture. We, we quickly equate them. And I don't know if it's really right or fair to do this all the time, but, but we do equate them with the storms in our lives, issues that we face. 
and Jesus being able to calm them. But I think it's worth just stopping to make mention because of what we've prayed through tonight, because of where we've been through the evening, that he's not afraid of the storms that you face. And you might say, wait a minute. Okay, so he told them to go and get in a boat and go across the lake. And so they're good disciples, right? They're they're doing the right thing. This is very important. They're good disciples. They're doing what God said, when he said it, how he said it. They did it immediately. They were good, obedient disciples. And then all of a sudden, they hit a storm. And I don't think it's one of those, you know, storms that was going to swamp the boat. No one's freaking out about that. But it just sounds like it was a storm where the wind is coming, and they just had to work really, really hard. And they got really, really tired trying to do what Jesus had told them to do. Now, surely Jesus would not say, obey what I tell you, be good disciples, get in the boat and go across the other side and have them immediately hit a storm. Why would Jesus ever do that? He wouldn't do that to anybody ever, would he? (laughs) Yeah, he would. Because oftentimes he wants to teach us things. And just a quick aside, have you ever really just kind of breezed through real quick and, and thought about how Jesus thinks about storms? Jesus isn't freaked out about storms of life. Why? Because he knows that he can sleep through them, (laughs) he can walk all over them, (laughs) and he can calm them in a second. And because you follow him and you serve him and you seek him and you want to know him, you can do the same. With him in you, you can do the same. Don't worry. You're facing one right now. Don't worry. He's with you. He's walking with you. So as the the story continues in verse 28, here we go. Peter, he says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. It's a bold statement. And Jesus says the word that I believe he's saying to every one of us tonight and continually, all the time saying to you, come, come, come with me. Come to me. Come with me. Go where I'm going. Do what I'm doing. Be a part of what's happening. Let me work with you. Come to me. So Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. Don't go Sunday school. Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water with Jesus. He's actually, physically, factually walking on water. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Peter saw Jesus as he was coming, and something happened in that moment. He was inspired to step out beyond the baseline of obedience. Remember, he was a good disciple doing what Jesus said, when he said it, how he said it, because he's in the boat. Whose idea was it to get out of this boat? Right, it was Peter's. It was Peter's idea. He's the one who initiated it. He's the one who said, let me come out to you. And I think this is the idea tonight. 
when we see Jesus for who he really is, you truly look at Jesus. You actually see him. You fix your gaze on him. You begin to understand through his word and through conversations with one another. You find out who Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who he really is. You become inspired to live beyond the baseline of obedience. The problem is we just don't look often enough. Have you looked at Jesus lately? Have you really taken the time to look? And what version of him are you looking at? Are you looking at the version that you've, that you've uh, picked up because of your life experience? Well, life has taught me that Jesus is like this, and I don't know if I want to serve a God like that. Or I've heard a story about this Jesus that you serve, and so I don't know that I really want to be a part of that kind of a thing. I'm not talking about the Jesus that you've just heard about or your life experience has taught you about because that's not reliable. I'm talking about the one true living God that is represented in the pages of this book that we find and know through our diligent study and through seeking and finding him. The one true God. When you see him is when you can start doing more than you ever thought you could, going beyond the baseline. Most people vilify Peter for his actions here in this passage. That's the way I grew up. I heard sermon after sermon after sermon. So Peter, he got down out of the boat and he walked on the water. And then he doubted, took his eyes off Jesus, what he did. Looked around, saw the wind, saw the waves, got scared, lost his faith, fell. Peter, loser. But... Jesus called him Satan. I mean, don't get any worse than that. Peter, major foot and mouth disease, always saying things impulsively, just doing the wrong thing at the wrong time all the time. That's who Peter was. Now listen, it's true. He shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have taken his eyes off Jesus. He shouldn't have lost his faith. Yes, that's right. But I think that Peter is the great hero in this story. Why? Because all the disciples, though they were good and obedient, they were sitting in the boat doing the right thing. Nothing wrong with what they were doing. But Peter was the one who said, Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. He initiated something with Jesus because he wanted more of him. And I think that's really the idea here. I think that what he says, what Peter, when he initiates this, he was not looking to perform some kind of miracle. That wasn't his desire. He wasn't just saying, I want to do something really cool. I just want to get out and do something amazing and say to the rest of the disciples, hey, did you guys see what I did? Because it was awesome. Let's see. Everybody here who's walked on water, raise your hand. Oh, not so fast, guys. I did it. I don't think that was it. I don't think that his request was to make a show. I think it was impulsive love. Peter was impulsive. He just, he just blurts things out all the time. That's why he got in so much trouble. I think it was impulsive love because notice what he asked. He didn't say, hey, if it's you, let me get down and let me walk on water. He said, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. Let me be near you on the water. Let me be intimate with you. Let me be close to you. Let me find you. Let me do this thing that you're doing. Let me be with you. I think that was what he was really asking. And you know what made it possible? It was Peter's position. It was because he was a good disciple, obedient, 
in the boat, doing what God said, when he said it, how he said it. Peter's position provided the opportunity to do something beyond the baseline. If Peter had decided, hey, I'm going to live on the shore, I'm going to hang out here. Oh, guys, that was so much work passing the food out to those 10,000 people. I am beat. I'm going to stay here. I know Jesus said get in the boat, but he'll be cool with it, I'm sure. He's not even here. So you guys go on ahead. Looks a little rough out there. You guys go on ahead, and I'll just, I'll, I'll meander. I'll get over there somehow a little bit later. If he had said that, if he had been disobedient, he would not have had the opportunity. It's because he was obedient that he got the opportunity to do it. He had to start from there to be able to go beyond. I get concerned sometimes in my life and for all of us that from time to time we live ship to shore and ship to shore and ship to shore. We hang out on the shore, just trying to do our own thing. We get consumed in our own lives, our own desires. And then we realize, I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this. We come into a great worship setting. We say, oh, man, I forgot about this. I've not been living right. So I got to make this right. So you repent and you come back to God and you walk over and you get in the boat. and You're saying, yes, this is where I want to be. And then all the old stuff of life starts creeping up on you again. And you start heading back to the shore, unbeknownst to you. And before you know it, you're on the shore again. Oh, I got to repent. I got to get back. I got to get back. And you spend every worship setting, every quiet time, every moment sitting down with brothers and sisters at coffee and talking, being in a connect group. You spend all of your time saying, oh, God, forgive me. I need to repent. I need you to help me with my sin. Listen, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's the right thing to do. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to get rid of it. But at some point, you've got to settle the issue. And you've got to stay obedient not because of your own strength he's going to help you do it if you just surrender and say yes but we're wasting our time going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth ship to shore and we never get to do something beyond because we're wasting it you know Peter could have stayed in the boat too and he could have just waited for Jesus to come and get in you could have hung out with him there, and there would have been nothing wrong with that. I think that would have been great. He still would have been obedient. That's a great thing to do. But Peter wanted more of Jesus, and he was in the position to ask and go. So as we close tonight, I want to just present you just four quick ideas, I think, that from this passage that Peter modeled for all of us. Some, some ideas for true discipleship that tonight I want to ask you if you would consider trying to model in your own life. Number one, I've already said it, but look at Jesus. See him. Look at the Lord Jesus. Peter saw him. He believed in him and he loved him. He fixed his eyes on the, the author of, and the perfecter of his faith. Hebrews 12. He... he, he he fixed his gaze and said, I want to be with you. Our eyes, I think, so quickly get fixed elsewhere, don't they? And all the other circumstances, all the other stuff. And a lot of it's not even bad stuff. It's just, it's just fixed somewhere else to where we don't really see him. What would happen if we just set our longing gaze on Jesus and we just kept our gaze, our, our eyes fixed there. Look at Jesus, number two. 
ask Jesus to command you. That's what Peter did. Peter initiated the step. He didn't wait around. It was Peter's idea. Jesus didn't say, hey, hey, anybody want to come out on the water? Anybody? Anybody? No? Okay, I'll be right there. He didn't do that. He was walking out to them, and Peter said, oh, I want to be with you. I want to come. And because he was in the boat, he was able to do it. Ask Jesus to command you. We spent too much time, I think, just waiting. Oh, did God say that I should really do that? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, don't wait around anymore. Just ask Jesus, what can I do for you today? If it's you, if you're working in my life today, what is it that I could do today for you? Which leads you to this, the third thing. Obey that command. Because <laughs> you got to understand, what you're starting to pray for here are really dangerous things. <laughs> when you start praying prayers like that, you're going to start getting things messed up a little bit. And it's going to be so great. It's not always going to be easy. But he's going to walk with you through it. Peter took the risk to do something that didn't make any sense. He did something that had the potential to go south very, very quickly. <laughs> and it did. It wasn't safe. But safety was not the highest priority for Peter. Peter wasn't so concerned about his safety, his reputation, what people were going to think, how this is all going to turn out. He wanted to be with Jesus. So if you're going to ask Jesus to command you, you better be ready to obey that command. It would be better for you to sit in the boat and be a good disciple and do your best to be obedient than to say, Jesus, command me today. What can I do for you? What's my step? What's my first step out onto the water? What do you want me to do? And then have him tell you and say, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> the last thing. Cry out to him when it doesn't go as planned. When it doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out, cry out to him just like Peter did. Peter cried out in that moment, and you know what he got? Peter got the immediate. I think the people who are out living beyond, they're the ones who get the immediate. But we all want the immediate. But the disciples who are in the boat being obedient, they're getting buffeted by the waves. I mean, they're rocking. Things are going on there. They might have been a little nervous and tired. So they could have said, oh, God, hey, help us. But they didn't need the immediate. They were safe. They were still okay. It was Peter that was in dire need because he was taking the risk, because he was doing his best to have faith and be near Jesus and do things that he didn't know how they were going to turn out. So when it went south, he reached up and said, help me, save me. And he got it. And Jesus pulled him back up, and they got into the boat together. I think that we turn away far too easily. I have sat with individual after individual after individual who has said, you know, I tried this whole thing. You know, I tried the Jesus thing. I gave it my best. I did what I could. I tried to obey. I tried to, you know, have faith, and it didn't work. And I cried out, and I heard nothing. I cried out for a whole, like, half hour, and I got nothing back. So I give up. I'm done. Forget it. 
and they reach away instead of reaching to the only one who has the answers. Just because it doesn't happen when you think it should doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. I know so many people that would have, they just would have pressed on for another week more. Something could have happened. But they gave up and said, this doesn't work. Number one, it's not supposed to work. You're just supposed to obey and ask him to use you. It doesn't work. This isn't about you. This is about him. Cry out to him when it doesn't go as planned. Would you close your eyes, please, and bow your heads? The life beyond the base, the baseline of our obedience to Jesus, it's, it's full of risk. It's full of risk to you, probably to your family. We experienced it when we just dropped everything and sold our house and moved to Austin, Texas to help start a church. We had no idea how it was going to turn out. And the honest truth is, I didn't even know for sure if God had said it. I thought he did. But as we prayed, my wife and I and our family, we felt like Jesus said, yeah. As we offered something to him, he said, yeah, come. Come. I think this is where Jesus is calling us to live tonight. And I want to ask you to think about what would happen if you really decided to live that life, to be like Peter, to look at Jesus, to fix your eyes on him, to ask him to command you, to obey whatever he says, and to cry out to him every time, every time, not once, not twice, not three times, every time it doesn't go as planned so he can rescue you. What would your life look like? What would your family, what changes would happen in your family? What changes would happen in your workplace? What would Austin look like if churches in the city, if we all decided, hey, let's live this kind of life together. Let's not just shoot for the baseline. Let's try to go farther than that. Let's ask Jesus what kind of crazy stuff we could do in faith. So tonight, I think there's probably three kinds of people. And here's my guess. Quickly. One, there are people tonight in this room that are just sitting it out on the shore. Just hanging out. It's not because there's something wrong with you. It might be because you just, you didn't know. And tonight Jesus is calling to you and he's saying, hey, I love you. And I gave my life for you. Like we talked about earlier during the Lord's Supper, I, I died for you and I made the way for you to come back to my Father. If you'll just receive me, you can come. That's the first crew. The second crew is the ones who <laughs> are traveling ship to shore, ship to shore, ship to shore, in and out of obedience. You never get the opportunity to go beyond because you haven't settled obedience. It's time to settle it. Not by the sheer force of your will, but by the Spirit of God working in you. And tonight you need to say yes and commit to Him. Third group is probably the ones who are living in obedience. 
good disciples in the boat. What God said, when he said it, how he said it. But you're nervous about taking that first step and actually praying that prayer. Okay, God, command me. What can I do for you? It's time tonight to look at Jesus again, to have faith and to take the risk. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if you identify with one of those three areas, I want you, I want to invite you to just pray a similar idea with me in your own words, in your own way, as best you know how, and just say yes to him and make a commitment to him tonight. Holy Spirit, speak to every one of us and guide us and lead us. Father, for those of us who are stuck on the shore, tonight we want to say yes to you. Forgive us for our sins. We humbly repent. God, we pray that you would forgive us for being rebellious and disobedient, for sitting it out. We ask you tonight to be our Lord and our Savior and to wash us clean. Tonight we proclaim and we confess that you are God of all of us. And we give our lives to you. Help us to get up off the shore and join in what you're doing. Wash us clean. Receive us as we give our lives to you. Father, for those of us tonight who are shipped to shore and we haven't figured out obedience, help us to settle the issues and to surrender our lives once and for all to you. Tonight we dedicate our lives to you. And for those of us who are too nervous about taking that step out, would you allow us once more to see you, to have faith arise inside of us, and to take the risk to do what you're calling us to do? God, tonight we make these commitments and these dedications to you. And we thank you that you're going to help us in the powerful wonderful and in victorious name of Jesus Christ we pray thank you and everybody said amen